Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Stephen Levine, currently working on special projects for the CEO of Zapier and the owner of Think Analytically. We chat about why churn is not a metric that should be measured with one number, the difference between customer, user, and revenue churn, and when to use the three. We also discuss the mistakes startups make when measuring churn, how contract length impacts retention, and why tracking cohorts is critical when measuring churn. Stephen also shared how to track the impact of changes your company makes to processes and product on churn, how to determine the input metrics that impact churn, and the power of integrations when it comes to increasing customer retention. I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With a browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm very good, thanks. It's great to have you on the show today. Thanks a lot for agreeing. Uh, for the listeners out there, Stephen is uh, coming from a very heavy data and analytics background. He was a previous VP of growth and analytics at Speak. Uh, he's been head of analytics at Sestra Systems. He's a startup mentor. Uh, he has his own data, a freelance data analyst and growth hacker at Think Analytically, where he's the owner. And he's also now the special projects for the CEO at Zapier, where he's also obviously had a big influence on their business intelligence team and data analytics there. Uh, Stephen, I'm very intrigued. Uh, what does the special projects for the CEO at Zapier entail? Sure. So for us at Zapier and my role in particular, um, I handle projects sort of in two classifications. Um, one is something that's important and under-resourced at the company. Uh, so for a while, we were short a few recruiters, so I was doing recruiting. And the other classification is things that are extremely broad um, and would otherwise sort of have to sit with the CEO, but on a tactical day-to-day -day basis, benefit from having someone other than the CEO actually pushing that forward. So a good example there is um, our company OKR process, strategic goal setting and sort of goals around the org. Um, everything in company strategic goal setting ultimately rolls up to the CEO. But from a tactical perspective, it helps to have someone other than Wade pushing forward, working with the teams, iterating on versions one, two, and three of their goals so that Wade only has to sign off on the final you know, V4 version. Um, so those types of projects that are either extremely broad and uh, would roll up otherwise to the CEO or that are just important and under-resourced is what I end up working on. 
And how did you end up making this transition? Because I think prior to that, obviously, you were working with marketing analytics and with the data team. Like, what? When did you make the transition, and why? Yeah. So uh, this role came up um, mostly because it was something that I was looking forward to trying to do. I had seen other organizations that have something in this vein, special projects, potentially business operations, chief of staff, all of those types of roles could have a flavor like this. And so my initial introduction to Wade actually was pitching him on this type of a role. And when we talked, he said, well, it sounds like you're actually a marketing analytics person. Uh, And he was right. So he's like, all right, well, we're hiring in marketing analytics. Why don't you start there? And we can continue to talk about this later. Um, And then a year or two down the line from that, he started to see a potential benefit to having someone focused like this. Um, And so that's how I ended up moving over. Very cool. Uh, It definitely is an interesting role. And like you said, I've I've seen it uh, positioned in different ways as well, like such as the chief of staff for operations. And uh, it it probably puts you in an exciting position as well to be able to tackle multiple different problems at different points as well. Yeah. And it's very exciting to be able to see, you know, how you use data all around the organization. So we have a pretty sophisticated data team at Zapier, um, but to just have another voice sort of working one-on-one with a lot of different teams and advocating for them to use data in setting their strategic goals for the year um, really is a cool position and voice to have in the org. Absolutely. So today I wanted us to focus uh, specifically on metrics and analytics when it comes to churn and retention. Um, and I wanted us maybe get started off with, uh, obviously you've worked with lots of different companies when it comes to helping them with their metric stack and uh, looking at the different key metrics that they should be focused on. When it comes to churn, um, what are the typical metrics you advise uh, startups and companies to focus on and how do they go about measuring their churn? Sure. So churn is actually a fairly nuanced concept and metric that a lot of people try to capture all in one number. And that's not necessarily wise. Churn should be broken out into several different concepts. So the first version of that that you would think about is account churn or logo churn. Typically, that would mean you have someone who is paying you and then they stop paying you. So that account, that business churned. The second piece that we consider is user churn. So you can have accounts or companies that have multiple users. And so an account that has 30 users is substantially more of a hit to your business when it churns than an account that has one user, potentially. So you can also look at user churn, which is similar to account churn. Um, Third, you want to look at revenue churn. And so that's the same idea, but instead of weighting every logo or every account the same, you actually calculate what percentage of your ARR or your recurring revenue churned during a given period. And so revenue churn is potentially the most important one and the one that you that I recommend thinking about the hardest um, because that really weights for your larger accounts that you sort of need to keep around in order to continue building. Um, you can definitely get a revenue churn number that helps you focus on those larger accounts. So if revenue churn is the one that you agree to, you recommend people focus on, why would somebody want to track customer and logo churn to begin with then? Sure. So they tell slightly different stories. Um, 
user churn, account churn. Oftentimes, you may even not look at their, the fact of whether they are paying you or not. You might look at user churn or account churn on a usage basis, especially if you have a freemium product like Zapier. So we have a whole bunch of users that don't pay us anything. They're using our free plan and we hope that they'll upgrade later. But when we look at user churn, we often look at activity churn instead of paid account churn. So if they stop using the product, that is another variation on churn um, where you have to count users because you don't have any revenue associated with those folks. And I think that's something, a topic we all want to chat a little bit about later is uh, measuring usage and when somebody becomes uh, dormant versus churn. But on this topic then, so just continuing the discussion with the different ways, we're looking at logo and custom churn, we're looking at revenue churn then. Um, revenue in, in terms of the way we look at revenue churn, how do you typically recommend companies go about setting this up? Uh, what are some of the ways that you would typically want to segment uh, revenue churn by? Uh, and how would some of the reporting go when you're presenting to the team or to exec within the org? Sure. So the first thing that you want to think about when you're talking about revenue churn in particular is one big variation. So you have gross churn, which is just your accounts that stopped paying or that downgraded. Um, and so you take the dollar value associated with that downgrade or with that uh, cancellation. And then you divide by your starting ARR. So whatever period you're measuring over, you take the gross churn divided by the starting ARR, and that's your gross churn number. Net churn takes into account your upgrades as well. And so for a lot of businesses, you have this upgrade path. People aren't just paying or not paying. They have a way to go from paying to paying a little bit to paying a lot. And one of the typical numbers that you'll hear in SaaS conversation is your net churn number. And in particular, net churn can be confusing because it can actually go negative. So net negative churn is the concept where your upgrades of the accounts that stick around actually outweigh the losses from downgrades and cancellations. And in that scenario, your company is going to grow even if you have no new customers coming in the door. And that's an extremely powerful position to be in in the SaaS world. One of the most powerful. It's probably the holy grail in the SaaS world. It certainly is. We've talked about this in a couple of different episodes. I think one is with Jenna Besto uh, from ProdPad. Uh, on the episode we recorded them, they actually had recently passed uh, net negative churn. And actually in the last episode with David Scott, uh, he talked about the power of net negative churn and as an investor, why it was sort of that light bulb moment when he realized like how powerful SaaS businesses was, was when he understood this concept of uh, net negative churn. And uh, even if your company doesn't add any new customers, it will still grow and continue to expand uh, due to the, the retention and uh, the net negative churn. The next thing as well then on this is when we look at sort of churn and retention, um, a lot of the times I think people tend to potentially get confused when it comes to the annual versus monthly churn rates. And maybe you want to talk us through the different reporting on that and the math behind it uh, and when you would want to be looking at both types of churn and what are the benefits of, of them? Yeah, so one of the pieces of churn that I see get mistaken just in casual conversation typically is the difference between monthly churn and annual churn. So if you're thinking about your business, you're probably thinking about monthly churn numbers, especially at younger companies, how many people are leaving during a given month. 
But because the range of churn values is so extraordinarily high, all the way from net negative churn to net or gross churns in the 5 or 10% per month numbers, uh, you can actually get confused between monthly churn calculations and annual churn calculations. And more than once, I've gone into a business where they were trying to benchmark themselves and understand how are we doing relative to sort of all other SaaS businesses. And they say, okay, well, we have 5% churn. That's great. But in their minds, they were saying, we have 5% monthly churn and we think that's great. When in reality, 5% monthly churn means an annual churn of something on the order of 45 or 50%, which no longer feels so good. Um, and so it's worth making sure when you're having these types of conversations with people in your business or with your investors or anything along those lines, that you are clear to say a churn and an associated time period. You could actually look at it daily or weekly, although that's pretty atypical. Um, you, but you really want to make sure that you're clear when you're reporting these numbers out. Yeah. So uh, definitely, I think that's uh, it's very easy to confuse the terminology and uh, the understanding. And definitely, in the early stage, when you're getting into SaaS and looking at metrics, it's critical to understand the difference and the impact that the monthly versus yearly uh, churn rates have. Uh, because it grows out exponentially pretty fast. Like you say, a 5% could end up being between 40 to 50% uh, itself uh, on a yearly basis. So uh, thinking about that as well, like yearly versus um, uh, monthly churn, and when we think about yearly versus monthly contracts, what are some of the things and the impacts that you see businesses have when it comes to the different contract lengths and periods that they do? So have you looked into the churn rates and the comparisons when it comes to yearly versus uh, monthly and uh, how well companies fare when they actually have different plans, if it's yearly or monthly? For sure. So there's almost always a difference um, in the behavior of these types of contracts. And it's unclear and you sort of have to look for yourself as to whether it's a self-selection bias that people who are willing to commit to a year contract are more likely to stick around and therefore their churn rate is better. Um, but one of the things that makes you think that annual contracts are probably a net benefit to the business is that you will oftentimes see a large drop in retention or an increase in churn exactly when your accounts are one-year-old, if you have one-year contracts. Um, and you'll actually see a notable cliff in your data when you're looking at this. And so I really encourage people to take your churn numbers or the inverse, your retention numbers, and look at them based on age of account. And so if you have a graph that has the age of account on the x-axis and the net retention on the y-axis, you'll typically see a descending line showing that people you know, leave over time, broadly yeah. speaking. Um, and you'll start to see a cliff where a bunch of people leave. If your contracts are a month or a year or three years, you'll see cliffs at the end of those contracts as people roll over. That indicates that they would have churned sometime earlier. Uh, but they just let their contract expire. So annual contracts are probably beneficial to the business. However, the other thing that these that this type of chart really gets to show you is one, if you break it up by monthly cohorts, so is my April cohort doing better or worse than my March cohort um, is a really interesting question. Over time, you can see at 30 days, what was the retention of the April cohort and what was the retention of the March cohort? How are they doing? Hopefully, your newer cohorts are doing better. 
Um, and it also lets you understand if you get what I have heard called an Evernote smile. Evernote may be a little bit of a dated reference in this at the moment, but yeah. for a long time, um, they would actually see a huge fall off in activity over the beginning of a user life cycle. And then it would go flat for a long time. And basically, if you still stuck around, you would stick around forever. And then it would tail back up again, indicating that people would sort of try Evernote, not really get it. They would hear about it again, and then they would come back. And so their cohorts that were three years old actually had more users active in them than their cohorts that were two years old. Um, and that's another sort of holy grail of SaaS. If you can reactivate users that deep into their life cycle, um, you're really doing something right in the long term. And so I've heard that called the Evernote smile, but anyone looking at a retention chart, you would love to see that your accounts that are really old are actually picking up steam again. Yeah, and obviously the other case where you start to see that smile is with the expansion revenue. So yep. you may have uh, less customers over time, but if those customers are spending more money, you tend to see that upward curve if you're looking at the net timer or- uh, Yep, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, so uh, I mean, that is definitely interesting. I think it's something like we at Hotjar actually um, quite recently, maybe four or five months ago, introduced yearly plans. Uh, so I, I like that you mentioned sort of that self-selection, like bias in the sense that people that typically are going to select a yearly plan are probably the ones that are going to be less likely to churn uh, to begin with. But uh, it's also interesting looking at cohorts, as you mentioned, and really looking at sort of what is that drop-off. So Maybe let's dive a little bit deeper into cohorts because I think it's probably one of the like the best ways to actually measure and track um, churn itself and a lot of other metrics. Um, maybe you want to just talk us through a little bit more detail around the concept and why it's so critical to look at cohorts when you're looking at things like churn or retention. Sure. So there are two big pieces that I really like to look at here. Um, one is the the one that I alluded to earlier. If you if you show the retention of each cohort over time, it really gives you a sense of how are the newest customers that we are um, helping faring compared to the existing customer base or compared to earlier cohorts. And if assuming that your product is improving, your onboarding experience is improving, your copy is improving, all of that material should mean that your newer cohorts perform better than your older cohorts. And if they're not, you really need to understand why. Now, it's possible when you think about crossing the chasm that you're getting into the early majority instead of the early adopter or something along those lines where your newer cohorts may not perform as well, but there are a lot more of them. And so it's a beneficial targeting strategy anyway. But if you see that happening, you need to be proactive and really understand why are our new cohorts not doing as well? Did we screw something up? Um, and just understand what's going on behind those numbers. The second piece is particularly to understand that your churn rate will almost always be much higher for brand new customers than it is for established customers. And so when you're thinking about an all-in churn rate for your company, that can be informative, but it's extremely important to actually look at the churn rate of your customers younger than say 30 or 90 days compared to your churn rate of established customers who are older than that cutoff. And oftentimes you'll see the, the early customers with a churn rate that's literally multiples higher than the churn rate of the existing business. 
And that's just because when somebody signs up, they may not have gotten all the value that you were hoping that they would get and that they were hoping they, were, they would get. And so the likelihood of churn is just much, much higher when an account is young and fresh um, than it is at any given point later in their user lifecycle. So if you break the churn calculations in no other ways, you should absolutely break it down into young customers and established customers because those churn rates will give you different information. Absolutely. I think it's typically like from a lot of the, the previous cases we've spoken to, it's those first 90 days are critical when it comes to churn. Um, and you definitely see a big distinction between like the first 90 days churn rate versus uh, after that, our customers. Mm -hmm. uh, I also found it very interesting. It's a, it's a super interesting point that I think is often overlooked that you mentioned is that uh, understanding how churn can be impacted by the type of customer you're going after and the stage that your company is in. So we talked about this in a previous episode as well with Julie from Drift, uh, where they saw a notable difference as well in both uh, Drift and at HubSpot once they had started to cross the chasm and move out from that early uh, adopters to the early majority. Is that something that you saw at Zapier as well? And um, like, how did you know that this was it, that was happening? Or was it at a previous company where you came out of this insight? Yeah, so I mean, we certainly see different classifications um, as much as possible when we can break out customers into these different personas. Uh, we do see differences in their rates. And so understanding um, and even trying to distinguish among your most recent cohorts, who are we targeting from our sort of existing classic best customers versus who are we trying to stretch? And maybe you can distinguish that based on their usage patterns. Maybe you can distinguish that based on the plans that they self-select into. Um, but we do our best to understand the churn rates of those different user personas um, in specific. And do you see big differences between your personas that you have uh, when it comes to we churn do. retention? We um, do. Yeah. And it's not specific to churn and retention. We see differences in those personas across most of our metrics in terms of onboarding and activation. Um, you really are, are always trying to improve um, those numbers, generally speaking, but you may end up targeting a big group of people who don't perform as well or don't click as naturally with your marketing copy, for instance. Um, and so you just have to get better at targeting the right copy to the right person to get them to stick around. Yeah, it touches on a lot of uh, previous topics that we've discussed as well. I think Envision similarly as well had this realization of the different personas and how critical it was to treating them differently when it came to the marketing messaging, to their onboarding, uh, to their adoption rates, uh, because they saw vast differences between the types of use cases and personas. Um, so the other thing I want to talk about uh, then you mentioned in terms of like looking at cohorts and why it's critical because you can really get that picture and feel of how your team is doing and are your changes impactful. I think one of the challenges when it comes to churn, like as you alluded to in the beginning, is it's such a nuanced problem that has impact. Uh, so like so many different aspects can impact it. So uh, you could make an improvement in support, you could make a product change, uh, you could introduce new pricing and packaging. And, and these changes are happening throughout the organization all the time uh, within different teams. When it comes to tracking the performance uh, and the improvements or, or like uh, moving back over time, like how do you go about attribution and when you start to think about like the impact specific changes are making? Uh, is there any sort of ways that you've looked at tracking this and uh, have a good system in place that can sort of 
at least to some degree attribute the changes that are happening within the org to the change you see in churn and retention? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, churn in particular is hard here. So I'll give you a different example. Zapier is uh, quite good actually with our experimentation infrastructure. So if we make a change, we run an experiment, and then we can say of all the people who saw either version A or version B of this experiment, how did they perform on some next step of the user journey? The benefit to a, a framework like that is that you can see very quickly, did this person succeed or not in your particular conversion event? Where churn is so difficult is that conversion event is a very long time away. And so you end up making a change and hoping that you increase, let's say, 90-day retention. Well, you won't be able to measure that for 90 days after your experiment finishes. And that makes for really long uh, experimental cycles. And at a young company, it means that you're moving too slow. And so where the path that we have chosen recently is to try and figure out what the leading indicators of churn are, whether that's a behavior or a visit to a particular page or a second or third or fourth use case and then use that in lieu of experimenting directly on the churn rate um, to say, did we trigger an event that is likely to increase their long-term retention? And that's not quite as good as saying it exactly increased their long-term retention, but it's much faster and it allows us to experiment much more quickly. That said, we do always go back and look 90 days, 180 days, 365 days later to understand, did these cohorts actually retain differently? Yeah. So, and definitely, I think like uh, churn itself is really an output metric that's made up of multiple different inputs, uh, mm -hmm. input metrics. When it comes to sort of those input metrics are themselves, like what process did you take to begin with to understand what would those levers be that you believed would have an impact on churn and retention? Uh, did you do any sort of internal analysis and understanding of what those metrics or inputs should be that you would want to improve and track? And how, how did that go about internally? Yeah, so that's a great question. This is sort of an exploratory research project um, that we, our data team has an explicit mandate to look where no one else is looking. And so one of the things that uh, the, the team tried to do was to say, hey, are there indicators potentially as soon as their first 14 days that would say, yes, this user is likely to stick around for X number of days later. Um, and we found several behavior patterns that were correlated with longer lifespans. So in particular, there are a couple of key things that a, a person onboarding to Zapier can do that will indicate to us that they are likely to stick around for a long time. Now, some of that are repeat users. Say you leave the company that you're currently at, you come back and you use Zapier again, you're much more likely to trigger all of these metrics that we're talking about that say you're a long-term user. But a lot of those are just about using the product effectively. And so we actually turned it into an onboarding project and said, hey, if we can get people to use the product really effectively, they're more likely to stick around. Now, that doesn't seem mind-blowing, but when you can actually start to cherry-pick off the pieces of what using the product effectively during onboarding actually means, then you have an opportunity to increase retention by focusing upfront. Yeah, and not needing to sort of build any new uh, features or inputs, it's really about focusing on getting them set up correctly. 
But mm-hmm. I want to specifically like those, uh, what using the product correctly means. I think like for a lot of different companies, uh, this can as well get quite nuanced and try and understand. And like, if you think about the case of Zapier, it's fairly similar to I think Hotjar as well, where there's multiple use cases that people can come to use the tool for. There's multiple ways in which they could use the tool properly, if we were in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you go about figuring out though, like which are those actions, those key actions that you want to prioritize? So for your onboarding, like how do you know which are the main actions that people need to be taken first? Like, I don't know if you've looked into your case, like are there any specific zaps that you find are more successful when people set up? Like, have you gone to any sort of granularity in that? And uh, what was your process behind it? Yeah, so my uh, statistics friends on the data team will not love my answer here, but I'll give it to you realistically. So what we're really looking for is a correlation, not a causation. It's impossible to say without an experiment uh, whether doing behavior A actually caused you to be more likely to retain. But what our preliminary analysis showed is that there's a correlation between taking these behaviors, yes, specific zaps, specific use cases, multiple use cases, um, all of those things are obviously beneficial. And then we would try and guide people to do those things. Now, we are making an assumption here, and it's important that you understand when you're doing that, but that we're saying, we think these behaviors are actually causing you to stick around longer. Um, But that may not be true. And so you have to continue to watch this stuff over time just because certain behavior patterns are correlated with increased retention doesn't mean that they're causing it. And so when you actually take an action to encourage more people to do those things, you have to continue to monitor whether the retention rate increases in the way that you hope it does or whether it doesn't. Yeah. And and when you're doing this correlation analysis, uh, what is sort of the, the methodology? Like take us through one very specific case of how you identify correlation with a specific action that a user takes? Like, what is the formula that you're looking at? Like, how are you measuring the strength of the correlation? Sure. So um, for better or worse, there's actually opportunities in most small businesses where the impacts are so strong that you don't need rigorous statistics. Um, So when we were talking before about these retention charts and why I'm such a big fan of them, this is another reason. So you can actually take the same retention chart, cohort chart that we were talking about, And instead of dividing it by, say, the month of the cohort, you divide it by some other action. Uh, And so we did several of those things, whether they had multiple zaps, whether they had usage on multiple days, whether they had usage in certain uh, categories or use case buckets. Um, And when you just break up that retention graph into segments along any of these axes that we're talking about, you can actually see extremely easily that yes, this one particular bucket performs way better than anyone else. And so you don't need in that case to say like, what is the statistical strength? It's just visually apparent that the difference is double or triple. And so when you're talking about that magnitude, um, we I, I personally have not found it necessary to then go back and run a statistical analysis. You just say, look, these people are performing three times better. Let's try and help more users uh, use Zapier in a way that makes them three times more likely to stick around. Yeah, I think that does make sense as well. It goes back to that point that you made earlier of saying that you're really looking at correlations here and really Mm -hmm. you need to test this to actually prove causation. I think though there's also another step that can be taken a little bit further 
uh, when it comes to this correlation analysis, and that's potentially looking at uh, Venn diagrams where you not only look at the number of people that took this specific action and then end up retaining, but then also looking at the number of people that didn't take that action and also retained. Mm-hmm. Um, so that way you sort of get a sense of how strong that signal is. And ideally, like what you're trying to look for is 100% of people took the action and retained and no people didn't do this action and retained. It just yep. adds another level another level of granularity in terms of the signal strength and uh, gives you a little bit more confidence to run tests against. For sure. And if you can get a Venn diagram that looks like that, you know, you've really hit it out of the park with your analysis. So yeah. certainly you want to look for that. Very difficult to find though. I agree. <laughs> Um, cool. So uh, another topic I think that's very interesting, and I wanted to have a discussion and chat with you about it. We talked about it previous to starting this call is uh, at Hotjar, and I'd imagine as well similarly at some of the companies that you've worked with and at Zapier, we tend to have this seasonality effect where um, due to the nature of our products, uh, people use us potentially like we have a good portion of our customers that use us on a project basis. So they would have a new website upgrade and they want to go and analyze the the new site change and see other barriers. And once that project is finished, then their use case for just stops and they stop using the tool. Um, And traditionally, like if you look at it, this customer could potentially be considered as a churned customer. And then, uh, but what it tends to happen is that we have this huge reactivation uh, six months 12 months, 18 months later, where customers are actually coming to the product because they have a new project again. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this and what are some of the things potentially that you've maybe looked at um, when it comes to measuring and tracking this sort of seasonal behavior, periodic churn, as it is. Uh, I know like at Hotjar, we've had discussions, but really not looked into it that much, but understanding sort of like what is considered dormant versus what is considered churn. And I'm interested to hear your thoughts and what you've uh, looked into around it. Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. And it's something um, that even though I'm really deep in this type of analysis and this type of data, I have not actually found a great write-up or any sort of like specific recommendations around this. And so everyone seems to be just experimenting with it a little bit. Um, So in that sense, I think this is somewhat of the cutting edge of SAS churn calculations. Um, And I do have a little bit of insight into what we're doing at Zapier to try and think through it. So we do have a similar case where people want to use us for their quarterly events, let's say. And so they pay for a month, they use it even pretty heavily for that month. They just don't need it in between. And so they churn. But then we, we see exactly the same thing. Three months later, they come back. Six months later, they come back. And one of our data scientists, Chris, um, has actually started to do some um, more rigorous statistical modeling to understand what is the likelihood of this user leaving after this month or while they're dormant or churned, what is the likelihood that they're going to reactivate? And that actually starts to look at some of their cyclical behavior patterns. And so, of course, you can't identify this necessarily right on the first time that this user cycles. But as you start to see particular patterns in user behavior, you can actually segment your churned user base into high likelihood of reactivation or low likelihood of reactivation using some more advanced statistical models that I am glad we have people on the team to do so that I don't have to. And you can target those people with reactivation emails or with discount offers or with just a reminder that, hey, uh, you might want to give this a try. Even though it doesn't line up with your quarterly event business, you may still find benefit 
from using Zapier to send starred messages on Slack to your Gmail. Um, so the people who are more likely to re-engage deserve a bit of more of a high-touch communication. And you can actually start to do some sophisticated modeling techniques to understand who those people are. Very interesting. I think this is something as well, like we just haven't had the bandwidth to get to it. But I think at some point we've also talked about uh, looking at offering ways for customers to actually pause their accounts mm-hmm. um, to give them sort of like, I'd like to give it a three, six month pause where we still retain data, this tool still works as is, but then they just don't access it until they need to. Uh, yeah, that would obviously of course. be a lot more binary, sort of are they coming back or not. But Yeah, and, and you can see examples in industry of the businesses who have nailed that pause behavior, things like Blue Apron, where you may not want your meals this week or this month, but you want to come back four weeks later, and so you just pause your subscription. Or another example being Hulu, where maybe you're going on vacation, so you won't use your Hulu account for that month, but you know that you're going to want to come back later. So there are definitely examples in industry of businesses who have nailed that sort of pause and reactivate behavior. Yeah. Uh, And I think it's just a fascinating and uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more from you potentially even after the show of how you went about sort of doing that predictive analysis on um, the, the different types of users that are more likely, like what are some of the variables that you're looking at to try and understand the behavior of some, the likelihood of somebody reactivating? Uh, yeah, it's certainly an interesting thing to dive into later. Yeah, cool. So another thing I think definitely is a topic I wanted to bring up today, being the nature of Zapier and the tool. So, um, and we probably should have done this at the beginning of the show, but for those <laughs> unfamiliar with Zapier, Zapier gives you sort of like an incredible power to connect different tools with one another, um, and it allows you to trigger different events in different. Uh, tools based on behavior. So an example might be uh, you could get an email with the weather if it's hot in California, uh, or if I arrive home, I can send a zap to my uh, a zap to my Google Home to switch on the air condition. Or, uh, there's multiple different ways in which you can automate workflows as well within marketing and um, within your organization, um, sending specific messages or notifications to Slack. And I think the use cases are endless. Like uh, it's incredible how much you can actually do with the tool. Um, but I think the topic of this as well is an interesting one is integrations itself. So I think like Zapier has this incredibly powerful way of integrating tools. Um, and I think integrations, I've always thought of them as a way of like embedding and building yourself into a user's workflow, into a company's workflow. So that that sort of, gives you leverage when it comes to the cost of churning. Uh, And it's uh, the opportunity cost of having to switch tools then becomes higher once you start having these integrations built in. Uh, And I know in a previous episode as well, we chatted to uh, Pedro from Typeform, um, who's actually joined Hotjar recently. Uh, Hmm. But (laughs) we talked about a a case study with him uh, when it came to Typeform and working on integration. And we didn't dive into too much detail there, but I know it's a success and I wanted to bring it up with you today. Sort of like how much of an impact uh, do you see like integrations having on churn? And is it something that you see as well that like the the deeper people get integrated with different tools and the deeper apps, the the less likely they are to, to churn? Yeah, so that's exactly right. Um, the Typeform Zapier uh, churn analysis is actually published on um, our engineering blog, but you can see the details when they rolled out 
their Zapier integration, the users who use Zapier and Typeform have a churn rate on the order of half of the users who use just Typeform without Zapier. And so that's a major win, right? If you can embed something into your product that cuts your churn rate in half for the users who use it, um, that's a major, major win. And so integrations do exactly what you're talking about. They make it sticky um, and they make having to set all of that stuff up again if you switch tools um, just that much harder. And so while the Typeform one is the one that we've uh, published publicly, we've actually done this type of study with two or three other customers um, that show similar results, that when you can get users integrating their product with other products, um, the users who do that are really invested. They're really less likely to churn. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly powerful way as well of getting vested. So uh, one thing I wanted to ask you as well is um, what's one thing that you wish people would ask you that they don't when it comes to churn and retention and uh, the metrics and tracking? Interesting question. So something that I wish people would ask um, not necessarily ask me, but ask themselves, is just what does churn really mean for our business? Understanding where you're operating, whether that's your vertical that you're targeting users in, whether that's your average contract size, whether that's your go-to-market and sales motion, you know, are you self-serviced? Do you sell through a sales team? Do you sell only annual contracts? Um, all of those things make your churn rate feel very different. And so when you're benchmarking against other companies, one, make sure that you're talking about the same type of churn rate. Number two, make sure that you're talking about similar types of uh, buyer persona or contract size or vertical. And three, just focus on improving it. Like your benchmark against industry is only important uh, insofar as maybe it helps you raise money or it gives you like an idea of how you're doing. But realistically, it's all about improvement. And so churn will naturally improve a little bit over time because you have this big established base of customers that don't churn. And so as you grow, your churn rate may go down. But if you could really make a step change difference, um, it can have huge benefits for your company. And it doesn't matter where you started. It just matters that you're continuously improving it. Yeah, I found that very interesting. And it's something like in terms of benchmarking, you made a very good point there. Is it's like typically people might hear a specific churn rate and think it's either good or bad, but it's really important to understand like your vertical, your account value that you're going after, which segment of the market, because those all have big influences on what your churn rate is going to be. And like things like going off the enterprise versus SMB, you could you will typically see drastically different churn rates and what's good in one market may not be good in another. That's exactly right. So last question I have for you today then, uh, Stephen, is like uh, I want you to put you in a situation now where you've just joined a new company, uh, you've come in and you've seen that churn is uh, not looking good, uh, things are not looking rosy for the company. Uh, you've been put in charge to try to turn things around uh, what would be the first place you'd start uh, to trying to turn things around for the company? Sure. So we touched on this a little bit, but it's worth doubling down on. Um, the first thing that I would try and do is understand if churn isn't looking good, why? Is it brand new users? Is it, are you losing established users? That's much worse. Um, are you losing users that use a particular feature, maybe you stop supporting it, maybe it's a brand new feature and it doesn't work very well. 
Um, so using that same chart that we were talking about, the segmentation styles that we were talking about earlier, you really need to understand what's driving any sort of concerns with your churn rate, and then you can try and figure out how to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. Just really trying to understand, have a good uh, baseline knowledge of where you're at in order to like, dictate the strategies that you take to improve it. Cool. So I think it's it's been really, really insightful having you on the show today, Stephen. I mean, I could keep you on for another two hours discussing the topic and going into a little bit more detail, but I'll be respectful of your time and of the listeners. Thank you so much for joining today. It's been a pleasure having you. Is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? Like, how can they keep up to date with your work? And uh... Sure. So I do want to say thank you for having me on. Uh, it's really been fun. You can find me sometimes writing on the Zapier blog, uh, Z-A-P-I-E-R.com, or my own blog at stephenlevin.co. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for joining, Stephen. Uh, have a great day, and I wish you the rest of a good week. <laughs> you too. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review, as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.